Hey, good morning, church. Pastor Jonathan, one of the pastors here. I want to welcome everyone online. And you too, we've been moving through uh, chronologically through the story uh, in the Bible. And here we come to 1 Samuel. Um, there's an app that I, I recently downloaded that distorts people's faces. It's called FaceApp. And so I thought I'd get on my Galaxy S9 and give it a try. So anyway, being a blonde guy, I always wonder what it looked like to go dark and furry. So you can check this one out here. And then I wanted to roll forward a few decades, add some wizard-like character. So I put this one on. And then I turned that distortion up. And the next one, it produced like a mummy prune beasting look. Anyway, I thought that was fun. But in this, in this book is distortion. And to distort means to twist something out of its original shape. And that's what we see happen in our story from the book of Samuel. There's a lot. And it is a story of, of the transition of the rule of the judges to monarchy or kingship. And how the leaders began to distort God's plan in that. And so it begins, first chapter, a certain man named Elkanah. And he lived in the hill country of Ephraim. And he was married to a wonderful lady named Hannah. However, she was very, very unhappy. because She didn't have any children. And she, it seems to be a recurring theme in the Bible. And Elkanah had another wife, Perenia, and she had children, but Hannah did not. And so this becomes really heavy on Hannah's heart. And it's a situation of haves and haves not. And Perenia starts comparing. And every time they would go up to the tabernacle, located in Shiloh, to worship, Perenia threw that in her face. And so think about it. Whenever, ever, whenever Hannah's at church, she sees this crud that Perenia taunts her with. And Elkanah tries to console her by saying, Hannah, why do you weep? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? But still, she wants a child. And this man is clueless about her need. And I imagine she just rolled her eyes and says, man, this guy doesn't get it. And it's a distortion. And Hannah goes into the tabernacle and she prays. And she gets away from her husband and his other wife for a little bit. And she really, really prays. Gets down on her knees. She's bawling her eyes out. She's putting this before the Lord by saying, God, don't you remember me? Don't forget me. Because it seems like she has been forgotten by God. And she's a wonderful woman. And she would have made an amazing mother as well. And then she begins to bargain with God. God, if you give me a son, I will set him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. And we learn from Samson that a Nazarite was from that, that tribe, that lineage of the Nazarites. And what, what, do you guys remember that a couple, day, a couple weeks ago? Samson couldn't cut his hair, and then also he's abstained from alcohol. And so she wants to set her son apart as an expression of that loyalty and dedication to the Lord for this young one. And so if God would do something for her, she would dedicate that. And in fact, she is blessed with a, with a boy. And so she's in the midst of that personal tra tragedy, there's a little humor, and this is how it happens. Hannah is praying fervently, and you can picture it. She's down on her knees, moving her lips, and she's praying out and petitioning. And then Eli, the high priest there, he sees this odd behavior, and he thinks she's lit, 
drunk. And he's like, woman, stop your drink. You've had too many beers at the church festival. No, no, Lord, she says, I am not drunk. I'm pouring out my soul. And he says this. He says, go in peace, Hannah, for Israel, a God of Israel, has granted your petition. And what does God do? He does. He answers her prayer, and he gives her a son that she asked for, and Hannah makes good on her promise. She dedicates her baby to the service of the Lord. And we find that Samuel is part of the plan for Israel's future. And God looks upon this authentic, godly woman and blesses her. So in 1 Samuel 1, 27 through 28, she says, For this child I prayed that the Lord has granted me my petition, which I have asked of him. Therefore, I have also lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. And so she keeps her promise to God. I, I think about that as a, as a parent of lending my kids to the Lord for some type of service. You know, uh, Sarah Putman came back from Romania uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, she's the daughter of Marge and Pastor Mark Putman, and she shared in this place, I think it was Wednesday at, at 11 o'clock, a couple Wednesdays ago, about her ministry in Romania, and it was an outstanding presentation. She was dedicating her life to serving God and molding and shaping the lives of these young women in Romania. And I know we're all proud of her, and I know Mark and Margie are proud of her as well, but I think about that as a parent. Wow, letting my kid go halfway around the world. But that's what's happened. They've been dedicated. Sarah's been dedicated. And so Samuel is dedicated for that kind of work as a dedicated of the priesthood. And he grows up to be one of the greatest judges, prophets, and leaders in Israel. He's remembered as the kingmaker. For Saul and David, he anoints them kings over Israel. But there's a reason why Samuel becomes such a great leader. In chapter 2, it ends with this simple statement. The boy ministered before the Lord under Eli, the priest. And so Eli is investing and pouring his life into Samuel. And in chapter 3, we have the call of Samuel. And you, you might have heard this story before. Uh, the chapter begins saying that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. And one night, Eli, whose eyes are becoming weak, he could barely see. And he was lying down in the usual place. And the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the house where the ark of God was. And so the religious climate at that time was very dry. Not much were, was happening. And people didn't hear the voice of God. And Samuel is sleeping right there. And you might know the story. Samuel. Samuel, and you hear that call, and he thinks it's Eli. He runs back in. Eli's like, man, I didn't call you. Go back. Go back to bed. <laughs> but then he hears it again, Samuel. Samuel goes back to Eli. Nope, I didn't call you. And then the third time. And then Eli finally tunes in that the voice of God is starting to come. And it's in the tabernacle there. And he realizes this young man that he's been pouring his life into is hearing God's actual voice, which was rare then. And so Samuel says, here I am, Lord. Send me. 
And so at the very same time, the irony of the story was, at the same time Eli was guiding Samuel's spiritual life, he seemed to be ignoring his own sons, Hophani and Phinehas. It says Eli's sons were scoundrels. It says that in the word of God. They had no regard for the word, but they were still serving as priests. These two are the most corrupt priests in the Bible. They were preacher's kids gone wild, man. And they, these, P, these PKs begin to uh, be recorded in the scriptures, and the author of 1 Samuel clearly lays the blame on Eli's feet. In chapter 3, 13, it says, Because his sons were blaspheming God, Eli did not restrain them. There are two men, they're priests, they know what's right, yet they didn't do it. While Eli just turns his head and ignores it. I'm going to get a drink of water here. Hey, last week, whoo, thank you for hanging with me. I was a uh, total full-blown laryngitis on Monday, so I'm still recovering. So these brothers, they're phonies. They're fakes. They're distorting their role as priests. And people don't like them. And there's so much power in just living the Christian life or being the real deal. And Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify Father in heaven. And so we're, we're on, and we have to be on all the time, letting our light shine so that people can be brought nearer to God. And these two guys are not doing it. They're not living their life. When people see us lead our lives, they, give a, get, they get a glimpse of God. They get a glimpse of Jesus Christ. They see how God originally designed this world to work. They maybe even tell you, you know what? I don't know. There's something about you. Tell me why you are the way you are. And that might give us an open door to tell them why we are the way we are. I live this way because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And so think about how our lives and how we live them can be a blessing to others. We can do it how, by how we treat each other our friends and family, by how we love and honor each other, devoted and faithful to one another, to where people say, I want to be a part of their community. I want to be a part of them. Think about your job for a second. Whether you're an accountant or a teacher or a welder or an attorney, add the word Christian in front of that role. Christian accountant, Christian teacher, Christian attorney, Christian welder. And think about how that's lived out in front of others. And that's, that's what our world needs today. To have people who are real and authentic before God living out their lives to be true spiritual blessings in order to see people transform around them to where there's nothing fake or phony and there's no distortion of phoniness. Jesus was often running into this phoniness with some of the religious people who opposed him. And finally comes to a head where Jesus chews them out. Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, teachers of law, you Pharisees, you guys are hypocrites. And he calls them whitewashed tombs. Look beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead and everything unclean. In the same way on the outside you appear as people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And he wasn't saying that they were evil. By the standards of that day, those people were really a blessing to others, but they were not, they were putting on a show more on the outside than they were 
of loving people from the inside out. And he was saying that pride of the position was more to the Pharisee than their service to the people. And appearances were more important to them than authenticity. You know, they were trying to look religious on the outside, but inside they were dead. You know, since I've come to minister here, I, I get this. I, I, I shared with our staff a couple weeks ago about what God is doing to my insides. And it's been amazing, the call the revitalization of call and living that on the outside and having that abundance flow through me. And it comes through surrender. It comes through just being authentic. You know, I like me, but I know me is always, you know, a little bit screwed up. But I still like me because I like what I'm becoming in Christ Jesus through that transformation that can come from authenticity. You know, I know we've all been there. And it's tough. There's always that temptation to not be authentic. I was, in, I was a new Christian in the early 90s, and I was working at a, as a waiter in the Netherlands, in the Hilton Hotel. I don't know if you guys have been to that beautiful place. It's a tough environment to be a waiter. It really is. And I had been there a couple years, and this new waiter uh, named Chris, he got hired on, and we, we were talking every once in a while, and one day we were prepping for uh, a Friday night rush and everything, and he, he said something to me. He turned to me and he said, there's something about you. I said, what? <laughs> you aren't one of those Christians, are you? I remember put my guard up. I'm like, he said it as if it was ew. And I remember, point blank, I can still remember as vivid as if he said it to me 10 seconds ago, thinking, do I tell him yes or no? Finally, I just drummed up courage. I said, yes, I am a Christian. He goes, I am too, man. I am too. And, and I thought about that. I just grabbed this guy and I, in that hard, you know, tough environment where you didn't see authenticity. You see a lot of fakeness and phoniness and everything. Chris was a brother in Christ. And I thought about, I think about it now. What if I just said no? Um, and that tension that we experience in the world where we, you know, there's, the world's constantly saying, conform to us. But God's saying, conform to my rhythms, my, my ways. Romans 12.1, offer yourselves in view of God's mercy to, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. This is your true and proper worship. Don't conform to the patterns of this world, but, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing, perfect will. And you know what? That gets rid of distortions. It does. And so the most effective witness we can make with our faith in Christ is simply live out what he says and be obedient to what he wants us to do and what we believe. And that doesn't mean we have to be crazy, fanatics, but when we simply fall in love with God, and allow that love to be conduit through us, it will produce authenticity before God and others. So fast forward to chapter 8. Saul. Samuel is now old. The nations around Israel, they all have a king. And the people of Israel are looking at the nations around them, you know, the world thing, and they're like, you know what, we want a king. We want a king. And so the elders come to Samuel and ask that they appoint a king to rule over them, just like the other nations. And so Samuel was real reluctant 
to crown a king. Samuel knew his nation should not be king-driven like the other nations. He knew that power and self-interest will always corrupt the person of, of, of kingship character. But God eventually said, give them what they want, Samuel. And so chapter 9 and you might have read that this week, describes how Samuel went about choosing Saul to be the next king. And through a series of God-directed and supernatural events, Saul eventually meets Samuel. Samuel anoints Saul with oil. And it says in verse 9, God gave Saul another heart. And so Saul looks at all, looks like he has all the qualities of a leader. He comes from a wealthy family. He comes from his father, Kish, is described as a powerful, wealthy person. Saul is a head above everyone else, so he's tall and he's handsome, he's good-looking, and at the time, though, Saul was very timid, and he couldn't see himself as king. And in fact, right before the coronation, they asked, where's, where's this king? And he was hiding in the supply, the supply room. And so you begin to see that this, there becomes this distortion of misrepresentation on Saul. And it seems well enough, the years pass and Saul starts off well. He wins important battles against the Ammonites and, and showing that he has a strong national defense credentials. He shows mercy to some fellow Israelites who don't want him as their king. And he provides that he's a compassionate conservative. And Saul, in the beginning, starts off well spiritually. It seems like everything's going well. People are happy and satisfied to have a king. But then Israel begins preparing for battle against the domineering arch enemy, the Philistines. They live out to the west, and Saul's army is small and it's really ill-equipped. But they trust in God, that God will come to their aid. And Samuel is to meet Saul in the army at Gilgal. And and Samuel says, you know what, you're going to wait several days for me to return, and then I will offer the sacrifices, so wait on me. So Samuel doesn't come. Saul's like, where is Samuel? We need this priest here to offer the sacrifice. So he just bypasses the priest's duty. He gets out of his, he gets out of his zone, and Saul makes the burnt sacrifice. Big mistake. That was only something a priest should do. So Samuel arrives, and he finds out what Saul has done, and he's furious. And he says, Saul, you are a fool. You've broken God's commandment, and that God will now, now look for a new leader. You've lost it. You've lost, you're just doing, going rogue and doing your own thing and not being obedient to God. And so when you look at Saul, you see a person who moved from very timid and reluctant and his head starts getting swelled, and he thinks that he can do the priestly duties. And God tells Saul that he'll destroy the Amalekites. In chapter 15, God tells Samuel that as well. And this is, this is pretty intense. And you kind of see that this is like the Bronze Age stuff. And God instructs Saul to destroy all the Amalekites. But he doesn't do it. He doesn't obey God. He spares King Agog and tons of his best sheep and cattle, and then he goes off and he builds a monument for himself. In 1 Samuel 15, 12 through 14, it said, Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. 
And he has set up a monument in his honor who has turned and gone down to Gilgal. And Samuel reached him. Saul said, the Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, what is this bleeding of sheep that I hear? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? He knows that he has King Agag. He hasn't wiped out the Amalekites and all their animals. And Samuel hears these animals. He's like, you have not done what the Lord said. Why do I hear these things? You see, Saul, his heart began to get haughty and disobedient. And there's telltale signs that Saul's head is swelling. And he starts getting big, big head distortion syndrome in this haughty heart. So I looked at this and there's like two signs that I see here with Saul in this hearty heart. After he almost destroys the Amalekite, he goes to Carmel to build a victory monument for himself and inscribe his name at the base of that. And Saul says, or Samuel says this to Saul, when you were little in your own eyes, then you were, weren't you the head of the tribe? You see, Saul got so bloated with himself. It reminds me of 1 Peter 5.5. 5. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. You know, it's, too, it's really possible that we can be too big for our own good. And the story of Saul is really a warning to us. And I don't like this story, what Saul does. You see, Saul discovers, and we see that in his activities in the last few chapters, the first thing of this, this sign of a haughty heart was Saul was too busy to worship. There was no pausing for the Sabbath. If you read these chapters, you see him getting busy building his own kingdom, and it moves him farther away from God. You know, when we get too busy to worship, things are wrong, man. Think about being too busy to worship, too distracted to worship, too tired to worship, too arrogant to worship. Everything about worship has to do with humility, the bending of the knee, the posturing of the heart, the lifting of the empty hand to receive what God has through worship. And Saul was too busy doing his own thing to worship God. Think about individually taking time to worship and corporately here on Sunday, being filled with the holiness of God. And I just love it love being here and worshiping with you and it's just cool to give up myself and what happens is this is what I, I really seriously know what happens through worship here is as I get filled with God it's antiseptic to face the days ahead Monday Tuesday Wednesday Thursday Friday Saturday don't you feel the same way sometimes I'm singing the same songs with my wife in our brains. We, it happened to us this past week. We were singing the same exact song. She was singing in her brain, and I said it out loud, and she goes, oh my gosh, I just sang the same words in my brain. You know what, it's antiseptic when we come here and we give our lives up to God in worship, and when we're too busy to worship like Saul, it just keeps that haughty heart there. The next thing is, is that Saul was too big to obey. God told Salt to destroy the Amalekites. 1 Samuel 15, 2 through 3. This is what the Lord God Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel. The way they laid, waylaid them and came from Egypt. Now go and attack them and totally destroy them. For everything belongs to us. Don't spare them. And see, there's a little background here. The Amalekites were enemies of God. They were always trying to destroy God's people. Folks, this was an ancient version of Hitler. It really was. 
in the earliest appearance of anti-Semitism. And Saul could have done it there. However, he didn't destroy King Agag. And God gives him a command to do that. And he didn't. You know, God commands us to obey. And when we get this haughty heart and obedience doesn't happen, it can continue to puff us up. And when we obey God, we find the good things. Jesus said, uh, those who love me, they follow my commandments. You see, we are to be representatives of God. You know, I want to ask you a question. If you were on trial today for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? My challenge for you today and for myself is to become an ambassador and representative of God to our neighbors See, the world desperately needs people to be examples of what it means to be holy. You know, we're up to our necks in scandals and political and racial strife, violence, strife, violence and greed. And we desperately need people of character who can go into the homes and into the community, into the government to be a blessing, to show people what it means to live godly lives. Without us, without you, I think the world would be in trouble. Our world, our community would be in trouble. Do you want to make a difference? I think we look at these characters and say, you know what, there's not going to be any distortions with me. I'm going to be the one that follows this one true and living God. You know, communion is a time where we can remember all the great things that God has done through the ministry of Jesus Christ, and we can come to God and say, when we have fallen short of his glory, of living this life, we come and find forgiveness and grace at this table and be renewed by this sacrament so that we can stand tall and serve in God's kingdom business wherever we are.